moment. Would you please take up your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. As I said, Sam will be preaching from this text later. Luke chapter 12. It's on page 871 of the Black Bibles. If you've picked up one of the larger print blue Bibles from the back, it's page 1035. But Luke chapter 12, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through to 34. Luke 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator of you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. I'd just like to add my welcome to um, Wills this evening. And if you'd just like to um, turn back to to Luke 12 um, in the Bibles near you. Learning what to fear and what not to fear is something that we learn from an early age, isn't it? I'm sure we can um, all think of, of things that we were afraid of, maybe as, as children or when we were younger, that someone had to reassure us that that's something that we didn't need to be afraid of. A lot of these things we, we might look back on and, and laugh and think, how did I find something um, so harmless, so terrifying? But we also need to be taught what we should fear. Maybe these are the sorts of things that sit in our minds in a slightly more serious way. We might look back on these things and think, well, I'm very glad someone warned me about that. Learning what we don't have to fear and what we should fear are crucial parts about learning about the world and how to live in it. And a theme that runs throughout Luke's gospel is Jesus teaching his disciples how being part part of God's kingdom changes the way we understand the world around us and the way we live in it. Specifically in today's passage, we see how our fears are affected by being part of God's people. We'll look at the passage in two parts. Firstly, what Christ teaches to fear in the face of death, and then what he teaches to fear in everyday life. Have a look now at the the way that the passage starts. Thousands have gathered around Jesus. People are even trampling over each other just to see him. You know, this might have been due to Jesus' growing popularity at the time, but it could have also been to do with his disputes with the Pharisees that have just happened at the end of chapter 11. People tried to come along and, and, and see what all the drama is. But either way, there's a wave of people that has crashed in around Jesus. But in amongst all of this, Jesus turns specifically to his disciples. Notice that in in verse 1. He began to speak to his disciples first. This is disciples in um, a broad sense. This isn't just the 12 he's addressing here, but it's likely a a large crowd of his followers that have come along. 
And this is a, a method of Christ's teaching that, that comes up frequently throughout Luke's gospel. His method of teaching the, the disciples, which are there, but also for the benefit of, of the crowds that are nearby and listening in. And on this occasion, Jesus begins by addressing the situation that has just taken place with this Pharisee. So just for a bit of context, in chapter 11, just before this, a Pharisee had called out Jesus for not taking part um, in their kind of strict washing customs that they had um, before eating. And in response, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their outward show of holiness um, that's just all a cover-up for their inward sinfulness. And in our passage today, Jesus uses what has just happened as a, as a kind of springboard into this um, new section of teaching, which will run right through to halfway through chapter 13. Let's have a look at, at verses 1 to 3, at how he mentions what has just happened. He warns the disciples about the subtle but harmful hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He warns them that the same hypocrisy that he's just talked about can creep into their own hearts. He does this by describing hypocrisy as leaven, just as a, a tiny, almost unnoticeable amount of, of leaven changes the whole loaf of bread. Similarly, hypocrisy can subtly grow and corrupt our whole hearts. His warning, though, in verse 3 is that all this hypocrisy will one day be shown for what it truly is. Even our hidden sins cannot be hidden from God. Our passage today is bookended by this theme. At the start and the finish, we have this same message. Have a look at verse 34 at the end of um, the passage we're looking at. It, so it opens with Christ reminding them that God's judgment, um, in God's judgment, all will be revealed. But it also ends in verse 34 by showing that our lives will also reveal our hearts in the meantime, even if we don't realize it. A reminder at each end of this passage that the sin in our hearts cannot be hidden. Whether it's through our actions now or, or judgment one day, putting on a show of righteousness is no good in God's eyes. And I think this is why we have this section all about what to fear and what not to fear. If it, for the Pharisees, it was all about just saying and doing the right thing to appear holy, to appear good in front of the people around them. But for Jesus, it's about having a true fear of God that shapes all parts of our lives, even the parts of our lives that are hidden from others. He shows the relevance of this in a number of situations, but first of all, in the face of persecution, starting from verse 4. Now, this, this wouldn't have necessarily been a situation that was immediately facing these disciples that were listening. But there are um, plenty of um, suggestions throughout the, the Gospels that this is going to be something that those that follow Jesus may have to face one day. But despite this, Jesus reassures them 
that in this situation, in verse 4, they do not have to fear those who kill the body. The solution that Jesus teaches here is is not simply just to, to stop fearing. He doesn't just command them that, but instead to take their fear and place it in the right place. As it says in verse 5, fear the one that can do more than kill, but has the authority to cast into hell. Jesus is terrifyingly straight to the point here. For, For many of us, the idea of death is probably scary enough for us. But what Jesus speaks of here is he's saying that well, death is the least of our worries. You know, all a, all a person can do is kill you, but God, on the other hand, well, he can decide beyond that. It's something we all need to hear, though. I wonder if we can kind of get into the habit of, of just thinking about the fear of God as this kind of awe and wonder at his strength and power. That we don't really have to fear him as his people. And, you know, it, of course, it's right that, um, you know, to, to the extent we don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to fear God's judgment because of what Christ has done. We don't have to fear that we're going to face a judgment because he has, but there is still clearly a fear of God and his authority that Christ speaks of here. But notice the, the change of tone. We, you see that throughout the passage. Um, Christ goes back and forth between warnings and comforts, but notice between verse 5 and verse 6 the change of tone there. In some ways, it's, it's actually quite confusing to, to kind of understand how these two verses sit next to each other. After these huge warnings that we've just read, this huge call to fearing God, we've immediately got a bit of a reassurance. Look at how verse 5 ends. It ends with saying, I tell you, fear him. But then look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? He goes from a sharp warning of fearing God to a reminder that God knows you and won't forget you. The way to stop fearing these persecutors that might one day come in this world is to to have a real fear of God, but also to know his comfort at the same time. For a bit of context about this analogy that that Christ gives here, apparently in ancient Palestine it was common to eat sparrows. In fact, they were seen as um, a bit of a delicacy at the time. And we read here that there's apparently a kind of five for two pennies deal um, that you could buy them in the market for. Yet, um, even these seemingly insignificant creatures sold for pocket change in the market are known by God. He's not unaware of them being sold and probably eaten. And if this is the case, then remember that God knows our situation too, since we have far more value than these sparrows. As God's people, we're God's children. We're certainly worth more value to God than, a, than five for two pennies. But it's interesting to note that 
God doesn't actually save these sparrows from being sold and eaten. Christ's message to these people here isn't to not fear persecution because God guarantees that you'll be rescued from it. No, the comfort here is that God knows it's happening and it's not forgotten. Facing persecution or even death as Christians isn't a sign of God's displeasure. It's not a sign of his ignorance, but God sees it. He recognizes it and he uses it for his good plans. Something that Christ, more than anyone, knew perfectly as he would eventually walk to the cross. But in the next paragraph, um, Jesus goes on to some more specifics about some of the kinds of persecution that his disciples would have to face. Look at verse 11. It speaks of being brought before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Here we've now got this added dimension of social pressure as well as death that has already been mentioned earlier. But once again, Jesus' focus is how to be fearless in the face of this kind of persecution. And again, it's by fearing God over man. Social pressure can be immense, though. Even um, for, for us, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be dr- being dragged before rulers and authorities. For us, it, it might be having people we know question us on, on why we've gone to church. Maybe it's our friends challenging us on, on why we believe um, something about a certain topic. For many of us, we, could, we can probably imagine some situation um, in our lives where we've been given the option to co- either confess Jesus and, and face shame for that or to take the easy option and just stay quiet. For many of us, there might be few things we dread more than a situation like that. But in those situations, Jesus urges the disciples to fear God instead. Once again, we see a fear of God that leads to to fearlessness. And he does this through a picture of having to stand before Christ and a crowd of angels in verse 8. I mean, any fear that we might have of being questioned by someone or or a crowd of people pales in comparison to standing before Christ and his angels. It's another terrifying picture that Jesus describes here. Now the thing is, having read this, we can probably now all think of times where we've been given the opportunity to confess Christ. You know, we've been questioned on something and, and, we, and we could mention Jesus, but we failed to do so. And it might be easy to read these verses and think, well, I've, I've failed to confess Christ here. Is, is, is he going to deny me? But the comfort um, that comes in verse 10 shows that this is far from the case. Verse 10 reminds us that if we're in Christ, if we repent for these times, We will be forgiven. But there is still a warning that comes after this. Um, A a warning that's had um, much ink spilled over it. Um, 
this um, promise of forgiveness from Jesus is also held in comparison to one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit in verse 10. Many have discussed what this possibly could mean. Um, it's, a, it's a concept that comes up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in, in all their gospel accounts. But I think this isn't a verse that's supposed to start making us fret about whether we've accidentally done this or not. I think put, putting this verse together with what the rest of the Bible says about forgiveness can show us that this can only be referring to a continual and unrepentant denial of Christ's work. Rather than um, just a sort of repentant lapse of, of courage in the face of pressure, it's a continuous refusal to put our faith in Christ, having been given many opportunities. In fact, anyone that's maybe worried that they've blasphemed the Spirit almost definitely hasn't, since this worry itself could only come through the work of the Spirit. But as much as there is a strong warning of our attitude towards the work of the Spirit, that's, that's not all that Jesus has to say about the Spirit's work here. The section ends with a comforting reminder of the Spirit's work. Look at verses 11 to 12. We can be fearless in the face of social pressure since we fear God instead. But beyond this as well, Jesus teaches that we don't have to fear what we're going to say in these situations either. Knowing, verse 12, that the Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And once again, this, this isn't Jesus promising that we'll be given the right words to be able to just you know, somehow escape any situation uh, that we get into. But it is a comfort that, to know that through the Spirit, God can use our words in these situations for his glory. So far throughout what we've, we've read in this passage, we've seen warnings and comforts woven throughout it. Jesus makes it clear that we're to fear God, which will free us to have fearlessness in the face of death. But I think naturally the question that comes after this is, well, how do we start fearing God more? It's one thing for Jesus to, to command these disciples to fear God, but how can we just start doing that? Well, I think the key is to realize that Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples to fear God, but he also teaches them about God's character throughout this section. He teaches it um, in a way that fear should come naturally. From what he says about God here, being aware of God's all-knowing sovereignty, being aware of his authority to judge, should lead us to fear him without having to be told to. A true and right fear of God will come from reminding ourselves and learning more about his character. It can be easy to shy away from certain passages in the Bible that, that maybe evoke some kind of fear in us as we read them. It can be easy for us to be dismissive, to think, well, we, we have Jesus now. We don't need to worry about fearing God. But Christ urges his disciples here clearly that they need to fear God. And 
it's not portrayed as a negative thing, but as something that's freeing. Fearing God frees us from the fear of death and rejection. Jesus teaching here, Jesus teaches us what we're to fear in the face of death. Well, picture yourself amongst these crowds that have just heard this. You know, the, the power of his message that he's just said. The warnings, the encouragements, all growing through your mind. I, I wonder how you might have responded as someone who's in the crowd listening. Well, Luke immediately draws our attention towards the quite unexpected response of one individual in verse 13. After all this, after all of what Jesus has just said, one guy pipes up and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. All of our hearts, everyone here, myself included, our hearts can go so quickly from listening to God to being immediately just concerned with our, with our own kind of day-to-day concerns. But this man gives us a particularly obvious example of that. But Jesus takes this, this man's response as an opportunity to expand further on what he's been teaching. Which brings us to our second point, which is Jesus' teaching on what to fear in everyday life. At first, it, it might kind of seem dismissive, um, the, the response we get from Jesus. Um, you see that in verse 14. He replies um, to the man, he says, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? This is Christ, who we've, we've just read, has complete sovereign understanding of everything in the world. He knows about each little bird that gets sold in the market. He knows how many hairs are on each of our heads. He would have known exactly how to divide this man's inheritance in the most wise way possible. Yet that's not what he does here. Instead, he reminds this man to be on guard for covetousness. I mean, how often do we see a similar response from God in our own lives? It's so easy to to pray for things that we we think we need or, or want guidance on, and instead of a quick solution, God corrects our hearts instead. This inheritance clearly meant a lot to this man. And amongst all that was was going on with all these crowds, Jesus is teaching, he he waits for his moment patiently. And at the moment that Christ stops talking, he asks him about it. But Christ has a more important lesson for this man to hear. I think one thing I found quite interesting about the second section is it can can seem in some ways like it's a completely new topic that that Christ just seems to to move on to after this. But I think what Christ is actually doing is, is taking his teaching on fear that we've just heard and showing that this goes beyond just times of pressure and persecution. The lesson we've just heard applies to all parts of our lives. All the fears that we have about life and death can be addressed by taking seriously the fear of God. So Jesus responds with a parable. 
a parable about a rich farmer. Um, have, a, have a read over verses 16 to 20 where we see this parable. Jesus describes an extremely wealthy landowner um, who even in, in all his wealth, he has a, a, a particularly good period of crop growth on his land. And it, it's good to remember that this is a time where most people will have barely been producing enough food for themselves to live on. Yet this man, is, is, he's got enough crops to need bigger barns. He's got enough disposable income to just be able to tear down his old barns and build some new ones. Um, and he says to himself at this moment, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I feel like for many of us, this is possibly what, what we desire and what we work towards. It's so easy to fall into this way of thinking, to desire to kind of finally get to this point where we can have enough things, enough income, a nice enough car or house, finally get to that point where we can just relax. But we'll see here that just how flawed this way of life is. This rich landowner has a false sense of security and control over his circumstances. A foolishness that's exposed for what it is in verse 20. He had grain stored up to last him years, but he dies that very night. Here we see in action Christ's message at the start of hidden truth coming to light. God's judgment comes that night to this man and shows his life for its true foolishness. Instead of being rich towards God and, and using his crops to, to help others or, or, or give generously, he stores it up selfishly <clears throat> for himself. A lifestyle exposed here for what it really achieves. And Jesus takes this parable and he explains its relevance for all of the disciples that are listening. Off the back of this parable, he urges them in verse 22, do not be anxious about life. Which is funny because the man in this parable didn't seem to be anxious at all. He seemed to be the exact opposite, actually. But we see that whether it's being anxious about having enough possessions or complacent in our wealth, either way, the same heart problem is at the center of it. And Jesus gives a, a whole host of reasons why they shouldn't have to fear having enough food or clothes. The first reason in, in verse 23 is that life is far more than just these things. In fact, he's, he's pointing out that to worry about these things is to have a, a kind of simplified and, and basic understanding of what life really is. The second reason comes in verse 24. Jesus gets them to think about the ravens. I don't know whether there were some ravens nearby that he might have sort of pointed them towards, but unlike this rich man, they don't have farms or storehouses or anything else like that, but God still feeds them. And how much more significant are we in God's eyes than a raven? 
And this would have been particularly pertinent for any Jews that were listening to this as well, since ravens were seen as an unclean animal. God even cares for the ravens, an unclean, insignificant animal. How much more must he care for us then? A similar similar analogy is then used um, in verse 27 with the comparison of lilies this time. We we see this on three occasions in this um, passage of a sort of lesser to greater comparison. Verse 27 Not even Solomon in all his glory is a match for the beauty of a simple flower. Yet the flowers do it without any worry, without any effort. Plants which ultimately end up getting thrown into the fire, yet God arrays them with so much beauty. Why should we ever need to be anxious about what we were? The third reason Jesus gives is in verse 25. Jesus reminds them that being anxious about these things is ultimately completely pointless. He says there in verse 25, which one of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And I don't think he's just saying, you know, you can't extend your lifespan um, by worrying about things. I think he's, he's speaking more broadly here. Not a single thing can be added to your life. Not anything about your life can be made better by being anxious about what you eat, about your body, about what you wear. And the fourth and final reason that Jesus gives them not to worry about these things is saying that an anxious and fearful way of living is how the world lives, not God's people. A huge theme of Jesus' teaching that Luke brings out throughout his gospel account is what hearts that belong to God's kingdom should look like. And here in, in verses 29 to 30, Jesus contrasts the hearts of God's people to the hearts of the world. Have you ever thought about the, the witness to others that our fears or lack of fears might have. This may be something that we can easily underestimate or or not even think about. There's lots of far more easier things that we can do to be distinct. For many of us, it might be the the language we use, the the amount we drink, the way we spend our Sundays. And it's it's not that any of these things are, are simple. But how might it look for us to be people that don't fear like those around us. It's definitely not being portrayed as a simple thing to do here, but Christ um, points it out clearly. A God-fearing heart leads to fearlessness that's completely distinct from the world around us. Seeing someone's fear or lack of fear can portray a powerful message about them. Our fear of God And comfort in his caring character should lead us to a fearlessness that the world notices. This could come in all kinds of different situations. And it may take time for people to see. This is the kind of thing that that could take a whole lifetime. But I wonder what the people that we we see each day 
would think when they see this. What it could point them towards. Well, just to um, wrap things up, verse 32 to 34 brings our, our passage to a close with a great summary of what this life looks like. Have a look at that now. It's a life shaped by fearing God. It's a life of generosity, verse 33, because we're not afraid of not being provided for. A life that's given to things not of this world, but things that are eternal. For as verse 34 says, this will be the true measure of where our hearts really are. Let's be a church whose lives show to people that we fear God above anything else. Amen.